Welcome to the World Architecture Festival podcast. This series features recordings from the annual festival, where architects and commentators discuss the latest challenges and innovations in the industry. Make sure you subscribe to always receive the latest episode and also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Our handle is at WorldArchFest. We're going to look at, um, in this examination of various aspects of housing, we're going to look at the actually historically um, contentious issue of uh, what is the right what is the right form of urban block um, is it the ones that the Romans invented based on military experience um, is it free form um, how do we uh, how do we approach firstly the idea of the urban block and then secondly housing in relation to it um, first up is going to be Corin Sharpless who's a principal at shop architect New York City uh, and then Morton Schmidt, principal at Schmidt Hammer Lassen um, from Copenhagen. And then we'll have a little discussion. So please welcome Corin Sharpless. Hello. Um, thanks for having me here. Uh, this is my first time in Berlin. Um, so I came yesterday. Uh, not the best day for walking around, but there was so much I wanted to see for so long, uh, so I did it. Um, and, you know, the city reminds me uh, very much of uh, Washington, D.C., um, which is the capital city of my nation and um, where I grew up. And, you know, um, Washington, D.C. is also very walkable, very livable, but if you live in the suburbs just outside of the city, which is... Um, where I grew up in Maryland, people spend most of their day in a car. And um, I moved to New York almost 25 years ago to go to Graduate School of Architecture. I sold my car and, um, and I stayed. And my partners at shop also came from places outside of the city and stayed. And we stayed because of the work. We stayed for the culture, for the energy, for the diversity. Um, these are things that matter very, very deeply to us. And I think, um, you know, given the state of things today in my country, in the world, these are things that need to matter to all of us so much more. Um, so I'd like to show you a few projects today um, that my partners and I selected uh, to be involved with because not only was the opportunity to, uh, to make a nice building, to make a nice place for people to live, but the opportunity to, um, to have our intervention really affect the city, to affect the connectivity, to, uh, to affect the transparency, the accessibility um, of, of our city, New York, that we love. Um, so I'm going to start with, uh, with, um, with an arena. <laughs> uh, this is Barclays Arena. It's, um, it's a project that we finished a few years ago. Um, uh, and it's, a, you know, it's really a sports and entertainment complex. Um, and it's, um, it's a project that, um, that is the anchor, the planned anchor of, um, of Pacific Park. Whoops, I think we have an older version of my, uh, 
of my lecture on here. So there's going to be a couple of empty slides, unfortunately. Um, things I just dropped in at the last second. So, um, so Pacific Park is, um, is, uh, is actually built on the site of what was the Atlantic Yards in Brooklyn, um, which, was, which is the site of an active um, rail yard. And uh, my partner, Greg Pasquarelli, likes to joke, um, like, why can't we ever do a building that's in a field? <laughs> because that would be too easy, right? So, um, so Atlantic Yards is on the is really has historically divided two neighborhoods in Brooklyn. One is the commercial district, which is a little bit more high-rise, and then a low-rise um, sort of brownstone residential district. Um, and so our job was really to, to first and foremost make a place, right? And we thought about the context of Atlantic and Flatbush Avenues um, and how to knit that together through this building. Um, and we thought about how to make the building uh, you know, be welcoming and create, um, and create a sense of place on that corner for the neighborhood. Um, and also very important, um, because of the rail yard, this is the site of every subway um, station. Every subway line in the city comes through the uh, Barclay um, station. And so this was really important to us to make a, a grand entrance here. So when you come out of the subway, um, you look up through the canopy of our building, um, and you can look in and see the scoreboard. Um, and and this, this has really become a kind of modern-day piazza for the neighborhood. And at night, you'll see people who are there for an event. Um, during the day, there's flea markets and, and, and fairs. It, it's really people come to meet under the Oculus, so it's really wonderful. Um, and we thought a lot about the kind of materiality also of the building. You know, how do you take a large-scale building and, and incorporate it into the neighborhood? How do we break down the scale? We really looked at the, the kind of the grit and the, the, and the, the detail um, of the city in this neighborhood. Um, and we, you know, we thought a lot about with using this weathered steel, but breaking it down into a, a kind of like, um, you know, into these these shingles that were really almost kind of like on the scale of a brownstone. And um, and so then comes the housing, right? And so so um, this is these are renderings of the housing when we started out. Um, and uh, sorry, this isn't advancing. And, you know, this is, so one of the things that really intrigued us about doing the, the housing portion of this project is, um, is that it was going to be modular. And that was, this is the, actually now the largest residential um, modular building in America. So this was really exciting for us. And it also was exciting for us because the factory was to be built in the Brooklyn Navy Yards, um, you know, which made our, our great, um, our great uh, naval vessels for so many years uh, during the war and then had, had lined dormant um, for many years, and about a decade ago, it started to see a resurgence for, for manufacturing. So this building was actually made in Brooklyn in the factory. Um, and that was really exciting for us. And here's, uh, so um, that was our first mod lift. So in modular construction, you don't have groundbreaking and topping out. You have the first mod and the final mod um, being lifted into place that we celebrated. Um, and the building as it stands today, um, actually we've just completed, uh, and people are starting to move in. And it was really important to us because of the kind of stigma that can accompany modular construction and also affordable housing. This is, uh, this, is, this is an affordable housing project. We wanted to make it just look really normal inside, like a regular apartment. And the only clue that you have that this is modular construction is these um, kind of really thick uh, thresholds where we join two walls together that you can see. Um, so... The next building I'm going to show you is, um, is also a rental building. This one's in Manhattan. Um, and unfortunately, I think my aerial view is not going to show up here. But, um, so the plan is of, of this project is, is um, two towers and a school. 
Um, and you know, you'll notice in all the projects that I'm showing, the theme is, is not just housing, it's anchored to something. You know, there's, there's, a, you know, um, there's some other program there that gives it kind of a dynamism. So in this project, the, um, the school is actually intended to be on the, on the um, northeast corner of the property. Um, but there's an elevated highway there, and it's very kind of dark, uncomfortable corner, and we didn't think that was the right place for it. So we had the, we had the plan changed, and we had the school flipped um, to where it faced to, to the neighborhood. Um, and we have these two towers. And um, we actually didn't design the school. We designed the towers only. Um, and our client really wanted to join, um, to have a single tower. He really wanted, you know, an, a, a single, um, for, for efficiency's sake, to make a single point of entry and a single amenity. And um, that, um, but that wasn't possible with the plan. So we started with these, with these two towers. And what we did is we, um, we bent them. And... Uh, and we took this, um, we took the, instead of where you would typically put the kind of amenity space at the base, where we have a park, we, uh, we brought that up to a bridge level and we connected the buildings at the bridge um, with the amenity space. So this is, um, this is that bridge, and you can see you can op occupy the top of it um, as a little outdoor terrace, and then we have um, a, a lounge space and a pool, a lap pool um, in the bridge. Uh, so the view is spectacular. And we're running all of the building services um, through that bridge. So we're actually connecting the buildings. Um, so the cooling tower on top of the taller building is connected um, through the underneath of the bridge. And that, lets us, um, and that lets us have one of the roofs of the towers free for, uh, you know, for an outdoor terrace um, with a fabulous infinity pool. Um, and, you know, the view here is, is really the amenity of this building, right? It's, it's the East River. Um, so even, even from inside the apartments, which, you know, this is um, a rental building and a demographic that's sort of a lot of, you know, students and, and medical um, residents. And so they're not large units, um, but they have this fabulous view that really extends the space um, and connects you to the city. And, um, and this is, you know, the, I think one of the amazing features of the, um, of the East River is actually you have a view of Lady Liberty. And um, our, our building is like sort of straight beyond that on the skyline. And, um, you know, so we really thought about the materiality of this building and taking the context um, from Lady Liberty. And so we chose raw copper to cloud the building with. And, um, and it actually will age over time. Uh, and turn green. So we think of this as a kind of performance art for the city as it, as it uh, gains that patina. And um, here's, a, here's the building fully clad um, under construction. And then um, the last project that I'm going to show you is um, 90 Cab Avenue. And this is, um, this is a building that is anchored by a historic uh, bank and the you know I mean banks have deserted their monumental stone buildings um, in favor of you know smaller outposts and so these buildings are they're kind of hard to repurpose um, the, many times we see them repurposed as kind of you know entertainment venues but they're hard you know they're they're kind of hard to use um, and um, and uh, what allowed this um, what's allowing us to put a tower. Um, on the site of this building is, um, is actually a rezoning that kind of really envisioned tall buildings. And you see the building there at the end of that, um, 
at the end of that vista in the, the rendering, and that was an artist's conception of what might be on this site someday. Um, and, and we really didn't like the idea of sort of blocking the vista with something you know, massive. Um, this is actually what would be allowed as of right on the site, you know, massing the building off the side of the bank um, uh, on, on that kind of northern, northeastern portion of the triangle. And you can see that it's, um, it really blocks views. It presents this kind of wall to the city. Um, so we went to the Landmarks Commission and we asked if we could build a different tower, not as of right, move some of the mass, consolidate it onto um, a portion of the bank building. And this meant, um, this meant you know, interrupting part of the, of the historic um, fabric of the building, but we felt it was a non-contributing portion. It was kind of a, a rear wall. And, um, and here you can see the argument that we went to Landmarks with, where we said, you know, this is what we can build as of right, um, and, but we can do something much nicer if you give us this permission. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, from the street view, this was, this was the existing kind of blank back wall of the bank building and what we could have built um, on this site that really would have blocked views. And um, we proposed taking away some of that historic fabric, creating a new, like, really transparent, dynamic entrance um, into the bank building. And, um, and also, um, you know, opening up that whole wall and making it transparent um, and really activating that street. And you can see that, um, you know, as you come in through that new entrance, you get glimpses of this... Um, this beautiful landmarked rotunda on the interior. So, and this will be repurposed as a kind of food market, retail market. Um, and you know, it's difficult to work with because it is a landmarked interior. We can't change a lot. But this will be the first time in decades that the public has been um, able to access this fabulous space. It'll just be open all the time for people to walk through. So we're really excited about that. Um, and this is the existing. Um, view from sort of looking back at that, at that entryway from the bank. Um, and this is what it will be like when we open that up and give you views out to the street. Um, so, and we really took a lot of cues from the kind of architecture of the bank and the interior of the bank in our materiality um, and massing of the building. So we think this will be um, a really great addition, not only to Brooklyn's skyline, but to, uh, to the streetscape and, and the city residents as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you so much. Fantastic buildings. Fantastic design, really. Um, so, I'm going as well to talk around the urban block, uh, but I have asked myself the question, how can we humanize our cities? Um, and why is it so difficult for us to let that happen, actually? And could we, could we think of an, an ever faster... No, so, sorry, oh, it's, it's all these, you know, sink of pages and stuff. Um, uh, and could we think of an ever faster changing world with new strategies and new ideas coming to life fast than the planning tools that we use today, uh, and is that insufficient? And what could we do if differently? I believe there's this almost division between that everything shall be controlled and managed and probably ordered. And on the other hand, this urge of helping out humanity with our heart 
and the two elements doesn't necessarily support each other. Today, the planning tool we use to develop our visionary cities is all based on the traditional planning methods, the so-called master plan, and of course, local plans, regional plans, etc. most times with one solid master idea cast in stone, created by one brilliant architect at one point in time, that may not be the way forward. Luckily, many of our cities survived these visionary ideas where the motor cars should have direct access to our inner cores of our cities. Monstrous highways were smashing through the most critical and historical part of our absolutely no, with absolutely no respect for its history. We have overcome these ideals and luckily moving forward, but still we are clinging to the way of letting things develop. Even the great master himself, with his artistic approach, lost his mind when he wanted to turn Paris into technology. And when we look at the great master planning projects, these fantastic visions never really took the human values into account. And even so many years later, it's somehow very difficult to see changes, to see the change direction, uh, the change of direction, so to speak. And from my hometown, many years later, these big ideas were implemented with th this notion that wealthy people would like to live here with views and large flats, but that never picked up, of course. On the contrary, it turned quickly into the biggest ghetto in Denmark with huge problems of second-generation immigrants and one of Northern Europe's hubs of radicalization. So, I once overheard a lecture from David West from Studio uh, Egret West in London, and he talked about maybe a slightly different way of thinking ahead would be more appropriate for the future of our cities, based upon evolution. The fact that everything evolves out from an enormous amount of diverse factors, what actually, by the end of the day, makes a city real livable for humans, and not something which is based on efficiency, the automobile infrastructure, and so forth. David said that some of the large master plans in London lacks this kind of content, and he's suggesting new ways of thinking which is based on the inherent history of the place, whether it comes from the history of the physical remaining buildings on site, on the site, on the people we, who live in the area and their stories, or the way the movement across the site has been going on for ages. So David has been part of that new way of thinking in the development of the vinyl factory in London. And it has turned out to be very successful as it builds on human values, stories between people and history. And ironically, David refers to the most important part of the development may be the temporary pub-up structures, the coffee shops, the little factory, or whatever with, uh, with apparently the temporary suddenly proves to be the element in an evolutionary plan that can govern, govern the whole development forward. So as brilliant architects we believe we are, I think it's without doubt necessary to let people participate in the design process of building sustainable communities in our urban context. And when you look out and observe how the public themselves would like to build a sustainable community, in most cases it takes a lot more into account than we as architects may think of so far or may have thought of. It's about connecting on all levels between people. 
And therefore, it's interesting to follow what actually happens when people build their cities without the influence of designers, planners, and architects. And it may, from a distance, look like a junkyard, but when you take a cl closer look, the wealth of diversity speaks its clear language. Can we learn of these processes? To these, loads, load, to, uh, these days, loads of disruptive design ideas come to life. Uber, Airbnb, and we haven't really seen it yet emerged into the development of construction industry. It will shortly come to our industry and make huge change in the way we as architects and engineers are working. And if we look at it from a positive perspective, then there will be loads of interesting opportunities ahead. Building our cities uh, and our homes in a different and more clever way can certainly be imagined done by disruptive ideas, shortcutting the extremely conservative building industry we've got in most parts of the world. In Copenhagen, as you all know, is the second largest cycle city in the world. We may not pay much attention to what that has done to our city, but there's no doubt that getting onto a bike, being in the same exposed open environment together with all our fellow citizens does really change your behavior. And implicit the way you organize your city and the way you want to move into the city and make it livable. And you're paying, you're paying attention to suddenly letting people get first right. Would it be an idea if we could look if we could develop a complete different way of building a community where first of all highest priority was was building for the people today in many places highest priority for, for the development companies are making sure that that it is a high and positive yield to the shareholders of these companies in Denmark we had back then a strong cooperative movement first in the agricultural sector, and later into the way we organized our housing sector. My grandfather was actually an architect started, and he started together with groups of people, quite a few housing associations we are now proud of in Denmark. Could we think of taking some of these values back? I'm sorry, but incidentally, I came across this building. Sorry if I insult architect or the owner for that sake, or, but this building somehow symbolizes a typical Northern American de um, development model for not only offices, but, all, but as well housing. And my question is, does people really want to live like this? So meeting up with quite a few of these developers over the last couple of years and getting the same song, we can sell everything we produce, so why bother risking uh, new thinking? And people doesn't want terraces, we, can sell we, we cannot sell terraces, etc., etc. And that led me to do my own little project together with quite a few interns uh, as an exercise and how could we develop an urban block differently. And this was what came out of the exercise. So what you see is just the physical expression of an idea of a sustainable community but you shall more see this as a frame around a community which can, can uh, take many different expressions. And of course, all based on goals, and of course, with the notion of resilient design, there will be even more elements to include. We looked at 
what we ideally want to be included in our building. Urban food, food production, of course, fish farms, chicken farms, green vegetable productions, beehives. And we looked at what can be added as supporting community, Guggenheim venues, Serpentine Gallery lecture venue, orga, organic food market, public kitchens, high line spaces, exercises, and, um, and all that for your health. And by letting this building be adaptable to all new technology that can reduce energy and carbon outlet, green lungs, ice storage for cooling during summer, cleaning of water, of course. And we looked at how it could be constructed with reference to what is happening big time these years, the introduction of timber into large scale and tall buildings. Here, Michael Green's office building and CF Miller's tower, wooden tower in Stockholm. And, of course, we looked at various ways of manufacturing units and components. But maybe, by the end of the day, it's much better if we do it by hand, by people. And, of course, we have a core, we have a frame, and we insert various different units. And these units reflect the diversity of, of, of our community. We all have different requirements to our home. Some want to live in an artist studio, some want to live in a greenhouse, all done with materials we know from our best practice. And the towers could then unfold in high-dense areas, but be part of a larger context of green and sustainable design. Um, here, one of our interns tweaked it with timber structures, here from above, and here from one of the open spaces looking down at the plaza. Here, entering a public kitchen, Huge terraces, having small gardens alleviated from the street level, and greenhouses as well, plants with terraces, public kitchens, which is very popular in Denmark, double high spaces, more units, family home with the gardens, there could be luxury flats as well, and, of course, the systems adapted to lower density and be part of the green lung of a city. But culture connects as well people. And I will show a couple of, uh, of uh, projects that we have been working with, which I find very connecting into the society. First of all, Christchurch in New Zealand, which we all know went through a terrible earthquake a few years ago from a well-functioning, nice, historic downtown with many heritage buildings to some, uh, something that looked like the war zone, with no streets and no squares anymore, with no plazas and no inherent sense of place. We have been fortunate to work on the new central public library, the first building in the downtown core and one of the first buildings in, its, in the area at all. What would be more appropriate to place a, build, a public library right here to try to tie and connect people together again? But with this library, they added an even uh, another dimension as we had to design the library together with the Maoris, paying serious attention to Mother Earth, Father Sky, and their seven children. But we can take it further. Can the public participate in the design? Our design for the Halifax Central Library in Nova Scotia was all done in an extensive public consultation process. We took the public through all phases from the brief 
through concepts to detail design and listen along the way to their comments and suggestions. Six large meetings, 300 plus people over six months and around 1,000 people online Twitter. And of course, the process like, like this needs to be managed and organized properly. But we experienced that the success of the library among the public has not the least to do with their ownership to the, public, to the project. They've got a library showing diversity. Some in the public think it looks like stacked books, and that's fine with me. They've got a library that knitted well into the historic heritage, context of buildings, yet still modern. And when we asked the children how they would like their library to, do, to be, they said, like Harry Potter's Hawkrit, with bridges and stairs. And so we did, with a series of stairs and bridges, connect the spaces in various directions. But fundamentally, of course, it's, it's, it's all about connecting people. The public got their multi-purpose performance space, and which they use for a variety of purposes, yoga. And they wanted light-filled open spaces, and they even got an authentic, real wooden floor. Here's another example of a cultural institution knitting the city together. The Royal Library in Copenhagen, named the Black Diamond, was originally, and still is, a research library belonging to the university. But the brief wanted a building with extensive public access. Today, it's certainly a point of destination, not only for the citizens, but also for the people visiting Copenhagen. And when it was built, it was uh, the first of its kind, taking over the waterfront, which was closed for the public. Now the whole, whole harbor of Copenhagen is full of culture and people, and Copenhagen wouldn't be as attractive without the, the, the waterfront. I'm just skipping a little through these two here and then jumping right into it. How, how long time do I have? A couple of minutes, okay. And back to, and back to Aarhus, my hometown, where I come from. And by the way, the city which has been awarded the City of Culture 2017. We have throughout the last 10 years been redeveloping the whole inner industrial harbor area. The so-called Duck One being one of the cornerstones in this development, sitting on the pivotal between the river and the harbor oriented 360 degrees around. The building will act as the cultural hub in our city. It's so much more than a library. And the idea behind that it is an extension of the public floor and a covered urban space with the infrastructure of parking, light rail underneath. It connects deep into the city with its grand stairs. It makes the space outside animated with life. And the large areas adjacent will be occupied by public plazas and recreational facilities, not yet finished on this image though. And here's from the water. And inside you will see books, but very often the flexible spaces is occupied by the public addressing various subjects. The so-called media ramp serves both as a simple ramp, but as well as an open lecture hall. Some places are busy and some are more quiet. It's a place for, for everyone, and as such, it's, I believe this institution are crucial for the people who choose to live in our city. And maybe you can just cover this. It just takes one, two minutes, which I think is important as well. Um, it's art. 
art is really crucially important for, for our society. It's a necessary element of our society as we got to have the factual cyber world we are all so much exposed to balanced with another kind of thinking. And the visionary director of Aros Museum has pu pushed strongly to implement art installations where the observer can be part of the phenomenological experience. Um, and Olof Eliasson, my panorama uh, installation, draws hundreds and thousands of people from all over the world to come and experience this sensation. The frame is the building itself, a building that has been designed to let the streetscape, the urban infrastructure, pass through the building with a so-called museum street. We are fortunate to be involved in the so-called next level of installations, together with James Turrell from Arizona, uh, well known for his sky spaces. We're developing at the largest sky space outside his own rodent crater with a dome almost the size of Pantheon and with an open hole of six meters in diameter at the top, a space which again in almost spiritual ways takes the observer into the nature of color. From outside, the dome will be half underground, half overground, giving the whole area a new dimension for public use. That was it, thank you. Morton, thank you very much for that. You've both shown some um, lovely projects. And the question I would like to ask you is what your attitude is to urban grids, because I think in some cases you've responded in a traditional way, you've built up to the line, but in, in other instances you've cut back. And I wonder if you'd like to say something about Corin, would you like to mention that when you did your, your two-block scheme with the landscaping? You know, we've seen propositions about you're better off putting the landscaping inside the building or on top of them, which you have done to some extent there. Yes. Um. It's okay. Just do it again. Try again. Hello? Can you hear? It's okay now. Yeah. It should be okay. Yeah? Yeah? yeah, can you hear me? Okay. Um, so I, I think you might be referring to the first uh, or the second project that I showed, which was um, the copper buildings, and that was actually um, a planned development. So the, the city owned that site, and they um, basically went through um, a, uh, you know, a process of, of, um, of uh, you know, determining, of planning that site and the, before and then giving it to a developer. So we actually didn't... Um, you know, that, that particular project, we didn't have much to do because we came in with the, um, the plan was already set. Um, you know, we really uh, were able to work around things. I think in general, in, you know, and especially for the work that we do um, in New York City, um, we, we actually think that the, the city grid um, helps connect the city. And we worked recently on a project that I didn't show, but it's um, along the waterfront. It's a very large um, scale planning project that we originally did with uh, Sir Richard Rogers and partners, which is to create a kind of um, a, a, a green uh, necklace along the whole East River waterfront. And, um, and later we did a piece which is, um, which is a, a private development there, which had been a sort of um, uh, like a shopping mall, right? And it, it really turned its back on the city. It blocked views. And what we did with that site um, is that we opened it up and we reconnected the city grid to give access to the waterfront. So I think, I think very often, you know, the city grid acts as, um, you know, does act as, as a connector in these very large-scale 
projects that close streets, um, I really think, are harmful um, in that sense for, you know, for, um, for, uh, you know, for um, deterring connectivity and transparency. So we really do prefer to, to have our, our urban walls more porous. Morton, any comment on that? I mean, you, 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 my impression is that you'd uh, rather not say work in a rigidly gridded situation because it smacks too much of old-fashioned master planning, but it wasn't modernist master planning. Um, how, how do you feel about city grids? And those old-fashioned yeah. ideas, like you should go out to the building line yeah. and that's how you give the street yeah. life and as soon as you start cutting away, the yeah. space begins to bleed. Sure. Well, first of all, I think um, it, it works obviously very well in New York. There's no doubt about that. But that's also because you've got the freedom on the site itself to go almost as high as possible and you can do whatever you want. So that freedom is really the essence. The problem with the, the, more, the, the, the modern developments uh, in Europe where it's, it's as well based on accesses and, and blocks and streets and things, we're messing up uh, these spaces uh, value. Some of the spaces are both front and back because now we don't have a, a block, a traditional block with a courtyard inside, in, inside as we are used to in Europe where we have these semi-private areas but we, we have a solid block now and, and it messes up the whole understanding of the city and when we then don't have a, that freedom to do whatever we can do, then it becomes very boring, many of them. And it does not have the life, it's really lacking life. So, so uh, I think it takes a lot of freedom, that's what I'm talking about. Maybe we should try to open up our planning to be a lot more flexible, a lot more open, but of course managed with human values. And a, a final question for you both, which is how do we encourage uh, life in the urban block. I mean, is it possible to bring mixed uses in um, at, at every opportunity, or do we have to make distinctions and say, well, actually, we know that you, you can't make every street busy, every street in every city busy. Uh, how do we decide? Well, um, you know, I think that the way that we've seen um, housing in the city uh, the direction that it's going, and I, again, I speak for New York because that's my town and that's, that's where I've been working for you know, a couple of decades. Um, I think that what we're seeing is a repudiation of the model of the tower and the park, right? We're seeing that housing dwelling works better when it's mixed with a lot of other things. And, um, and in particular, we see that in lower Manhattan, uh, you know, where I live and work. Um, you know, lower Manhattan before 9-11 was really a commercial financial district, nobody lived there, it was, you know, nine to five, and, um, and after 9-11, uh, it was reinvented um, very deliberately as a 24-7 residential live-work community. I live, work, send my children to school, all in a, you know, within walking distance. Um, and I think that's really the direction, um, you know, I think that's really the direction for the past couple of decades that cities have been moving. I think it's very healthy. So no, not every street can be busy and you don't want every street to be busy. There's, you know, quiet tree-lined side streets, but I think having activity um, is very, very important. Thank you. Morton, final comment. I mean, in Denmark, you managed to keep street life going through cycling. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. And, and uh, the good thing is that, that we see that, that principle 
now being uh, laid out in, in various cities around the world, not the least with Jan Gehl as, as, the, as the leader. Um, and I think it's a very, very good idea because we are now letting people come into the, uh, the realm and uh, occupying the streets, as in New York and as in London, because you've got the mass of people there even to, you know, blend together with the traffic of the car. Um, but uh, there's no doubt that even in, in, in New York, it has benefited a lot that you can cycle around now. I find it fantastic. So uh, let's, let's say uh, hurrah for, for the bike. <laughs> A cheery note to end on, uh, Corin Sharpless, Morton Schmidt, thank you very much indeed.